You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Monster House presents... Monster Talk is an independent podcast production of Monster House, LLC. You can show your support by subscribing to our ad-free extended episodes at patreon.com forward slash monster talk. We want to grow our Monster Talk audience, and the easiest way to accomplish that is for listeners to leave us five-star reviews on iTunes. Positive reviews have a huge impact and only take a moment. Invasive species have been a staple of horror for a long time. In a sense, a vampire often comes into communities like an invasive species, slowly expanding its influence and growing its legions of followers, sometimes exponentially. The 1962 film Day of the Triffids is loosely based on the novel by John Wyndham and follows what happens in England when the country is invaded by carnivorous plants. But these scenarios of new species coming into our ecosystems and wreaking havoc are not all science fiction. Unfortunately, they're often horror. Perhaps no country in the world better exemplifies this than Australia. For a variety of unfortunately misguided schemes to use imported animals to various purposes have left the native fauna and flora overwhelmed by unchecked populations of foxes, rabbits, and the subject of today's episode, enormous poisonous toads. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Dog. 
Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stoltzner. Today we're going to be talking with Dr. Stephen Johnson of the University of Florida about the invasive species known as the cane toad. They're a frighteningly resilient species of toad that breeds aggressively and excretes toxic fluid from zit-like glands on their back. You can check the show notes for pictures. While they're definitely more harmful than a mere nuisance, I can't help but be impressed with their astonishing biological arsenal. Well, I say that now, but Australia isn't the only country they've invaded, and it may not be long until they join the fire ant, the armadillo, and the coyote as species that have all shown up unexpectedly in my home state during my lifetime. Special thanks to Karen Stolzno for putting this interview together. We hope you enjoy it. Monster Talk. All right, welcome to Monster Talk, Stephen Johnson. Stephen is uh, an associate professor in the Department of Wildlife Ecology and Conservation at the University of Florida. Now, that's in Florida, right? <laughs> that would be Florida. That would be Gainesville, Florida, North Central Florida. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've been through Gainesville many times, and a friend of the show, Stacy Sharp, hails from there. Nice. Uh, and uh, that's sort of like in the northern central part, not too far from the state line. North of Orlando, about a two-hour drive if you drive 80 miles an hour. Stephen, I watched a documentary on cane toads a couple of years ago, and Having grown up in Australia, I'm very familiar with with cane toads and the problem that have become in uh, some parts of the country. So for quite some time, we've been wanting to do an episode on cane toads. And when I googled cane toads, you came up. So uh, your 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 uh, lab at the University of Florida. So um, maybe if you could begin by telling us a little bit about the the Johnson Laboratory at at uh, the University of Florida. Yeah, so uh, so I'm a native Floridian. I've you know I've been in Florida pretty much all my life, with a few exceptions. At forays, as a matter of fact, sabbatical in Australia a number of years ago. But uh, nice. so my, my students and I, I do a lot of teaching and outreach, and uh, research is conducted through collaborators and my students. And uh, students frequently study non-native and invasive species, and these range from anything from rhesus macaque monkeys to Cuban tree frogs, which are native to the Caribbean and are introduced and invasive in Florida, as well as the, the cane toad, which is not native to Florida, not native to Australia, and it's invasive in both places. And I actually had a, a postdoc from Australia who was here up until a couple months ago, and we found a lot of new information on cane toads in Florida that uh, uh, is different from what uh, what has been found in Australia in some regards and also similar. So. Uh, just have a lot of interest in non-native species and uh, teaching people about them. And uh, yeah, so cane toads are kind of near and dear to my heart. They're little monsters I'm very fond of, but it's a love-hate relationship. I'm sure. <laughs> well, it, it, a sabbatical in Australia, is that like an out-sabbatical? That is it, yeah. <laughs> uh, terrible. I took, I, got, I took nine months off and I went to Australia to learn about their incredible... Uh, fauna. They're, they don't have any native toads in Australia, which is probably why the cane toads cause so many issues. Ooh, that's but, weird, though. Mm. Why, do they have any native amphibians at all? Yeah, they've got some native frogs. So there's three major mm -hmm. groups of amphibians. There are the frogs, or the anurans. There are the salamanders, or the uridils, as they're sometimes called. And then Sicilians. Never go in against a Sicilian when death is on the line! <laughs> which are this sort of worm-like, elongate, uh, slender, snake-licking type of amphibian. In Australia, 
only has frogs. Whereas here in Florida, North America, we have frogs and salamanders. And then if you go to the tropics, like let's say go down to Brazil, you'd have Sicilians and frogs and salamanders. But so, but but even though they have frogs, there's no native toads in uh, in the the family that the cane toad is in in Australia, and that's probably why they've been such an, an issue there. And they have been a major yeah. for the Aussies, unfortunately. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So I'm sure we'll get a, a lot into that tonight. Um, but how did you get an interest in cane toads to begin with? Well, my interest, uh, I, I, I love turtles as a kid. I love biology and, uh, you know, going up, went to undergraduate, graduate school, PhD, working with sea turtles initially, then a salamander. And I was working for the, here in Florida for the U.S. Geological Survey as a research wildlife biologist. And I was working on the Amphibian Research and Monitoring Initiative, ARMI, which is a federal program to study and monitor uh, amphibian populations throughout the U.S., mainly on public land. And I was getting emails from, uh, from friends and colleagues at the University of Florida, where I got my Ph.D., about Cuban tree frogs. And sort of that piqued my interest. And so I sort of delved into it there. And that was my entrance into working with non-native and invasive species. And then the Cuban tree frog is, it's, it's, is a monster in Florida, a little monster in its own right. And that just sort of led to other things. And eventually, you know, cane toads came on my radar. And I became really interested because I was getting emails and calls from people who were having problems with cane toads. And I thought, well, this mm. is something I need to, uh, I need to address from a, from a research and a teaching and outreach perspective. Great. You're perfect for this episode. I know we've talked a lot about biology on over the decade we've done this show. And one of the things that I find really interesting is that the distinctions that humans try to do to put animals into groups. So we talk a lot about uh, the phylogenetics and how, you know, taxonomy and those sort of classifications. But toads and frogs, like I grew up learning the basic distinction, but I'm not so sure there is the distinction that I think there is. Can you talk about the current thinking around the difference between a toad and a frog? All right. Well, I, this and this comes up a lot, you know, and you're right. We we as uh, as humans and as biologists, I think we like to cart compartmentalize things and organize them in a in a framework that we can understand and uh, people often say oh you know uh, they talk about toads and frogs or salamanders and newts is another example but the bottom line is is a toad is just a specific type of frog all toads are frogs but not all frogs are toads just like a newt is a specific type of salamander all newts are salamanders, but not all salamanders are newts. So toads in general, at least the ones that we have in Florida and North America, tend to be stout-bodied, terrestrial. They have a little drier uh, skin than, uh, you know, than, some other, than, than other frogs, even though they will dry out and desiccate if they're in uh, really dry conditions. And they're warty, and uh, yeah. like cane toad has these big paratoid glands. So all amphibians have very glandular skin. But the bottom line is, when you talk about a toad, it's just a particular type of uh, particular type of frog. We'll probably okay. axolotl questions like that. Uh, <laughs> axolotl? Yes. <laughs> we should have we should have warned you about the puns. <laughs> Being a science nerd, 
I like that. That's a great. <laughs> I've got a frog, or I've got a frog joke for you later if you'll indulge me. So yes, absolutely, you're entitled to whatever you need to do. So, <laughs> uh, so could we start with some of the basics about cane toads? Uh, maybe some information about their their biology and where they're from. Sure. So they're they're native to uh, Central and South America. Uh, you know, down into Brazil. They, they actually do get into the United States in very extreme southern Texas. Uh, they like, uh, they need to be near water, like many, uh, many frogs. They lay eggs in, like t- many toads, they lay eggs in long string strings, and, uh, and they have a free-living aquatic tadpole stage. And uh, the male, the male calls to attract the females, like in many frogs, although there are some there, and, you know, there's some frogs I mentioned that have a tadpole. There are some frogs that lay their eggs terrestrially, and there there's no tadpole stage. But like the sort of standard frog that most frogs that most people think about, uh, they have tadpoles that have to develop in water. Uh, interestingly enough, unlike many frogs, the cane toad, uh, the the life history, the the eggs, the tadpoles, the juveniles, and the adults are all toxic. The adults are the most toxic. Uh, uh, they tend to be more terrestrial. They'll burrow down with their, their rear feet. They're a generalist predator feeding on uh, all kinds of invertebrates, although a big king toad could, eat, could easily take a small vertebrate like a, like a small mouse or a small snake. Uh, mm-hmm. They're, you know, like all frogs, they have beautiful eyes. If you've never gazed into the eyes of a frog before, I would encourage you to do that. Look into my eyes. Look. So even <laughs> have a redeeming feature. They do have beautiful eyes, like most most other frogs. But uh, you know, they, and they have their native range. Like I said, a very broad native range that they're mm-hmm. that they cause no problems. But they've been introduced to become invasive many places. They like to they they're they're spurred to breed when it's at least. In, in Florida and Australia, too, when it's warmer and it's wet out because as amphibians, they have permeable skin and they'll lose moisture if it's too dry out. And uh, so that's a little about, you know, a little bit about their 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 biology. Great. Well, now, my understanding is that they're also toxic. Yeah, they have. So toads in the family Buffonidae, and that's the, that's the family the cane toad is in going back to the phylogenetics or the, you know how we compartmentalize organisms to to you know to understand hopefully how they're related that's that's why we, we you know we we put them in groups and so any any toad or any frog that's in the same family we would presume evolutionary speaking is is more closely related than one that is in a different family and one's in the same scientific genus so every uh, you know every organism <clears throat> on the planet follows the classification that was developed in well over 100, maybe 200 years ago by the scientist uh, Linnaeus. And uh, so they all have a genus and a species. And so the genus, that first part of that name, if they're in the same genus, they're more closely related, we hope, evolutionary, you know, evolutionarily speaking. So they're in the family Buffonidae. And they have these large, particularly cane toads, have these really large glands on their shoulders called paratoid glands. And it's this large gland that's a, an accumulation of a bunch of poison ducts. And if that gland is put under pressure, 
it will literally squirt out like, you know, like literally you're popping a, a zit. You squeeze <laughs> that gland under pressure and this very viscous thick bufotoxin will actually squirt out. And that is the poison. That's the poison that the toad yields. That's this, that's this little monster's, uh, it's, it's, it's weapon. And, and the, the issue is if, a if a, an animal like a dog here in Florida or in Australia, many of the, the native mammals, if they bite a toad uh, and it squirts that thick viscous toxin out, that can that can spell trouble for the animal that's bit and possibly sometimes cause death. Mm-hmm. Even to humans in some cases. Humans, I know, and I don't know the details, sir, but from what I've seen, you mentioned the uh, there's two of these canes. Toad's doc, cane toad documentaries, and I've seen one, and it's you know it's pretty campy and you know sort of cultish, but the information by and large is correct, and I, I've heard that it can cause temporary blindness and uh, and actually cause hallucinations. And I believe in Queensland, Australia, the state of Queensland, cane toad toxin is considered a controlled substance, even or it was at one time. I was wondering about that. I know, I know some people do. There are toads that people lick for hallucinogenic effect but also i was curious about is it toxic to your skin or does it have to be ingested obviously if it gets in your eyes that sounds like a bad trip yes so it's a poison rather than a venom so i you know like a venomous snake bites you and it injects a venom a bee stings you and injects a venom the toads are not venomous they're poisonous by that also they're toxic so you want to avoid your pet, your dog, encountering a cane toad, whether you're in Australia or Florida or wherever they are. That's that can be a bad thing. But yeah, so they're poisonous or they're toxic to a to a pet that ingests it. You know, and the and the toad that that gland, that paratoid gland, has to be under pressure to squirt it out. Although a a stressed toad can sort of ooze that, but unless you, unless that that gland is under pressure, they can't squirt it. So you know. You don't have to worry about a cane toad hopping up to you and sort of, you know, rearing up on its rear legs and squirting you in the eye with its with its uh, with its poison. It can't do that, but it will ooze out. And it's mainly again if it's under pressure. And it can squirt, you know, uh, you know, several feet. I I made the mistake of squeezing or expressing a tank, cane toad gland at a talk one time. I was giving on <laughs> Florida. And the people in the front row, I was like, whoa, that went a lot further than I thought. I'm so sorry. Needless to say, I did not do that again. So we have a native toad here in Florida called a southern toad that also has these glands. And after handling a bunch of them one night and knowing they were getting their their uh, paratoid gland uh, toxin on me, I tasted it just out of curiosity. It was quite it's quite bitter. I didn't see, you know, sure. no rainbow effects. I didn't, you know, I didn't no. trip thing off of it but i i was just you know scientific curiosity so i gave it a taste it was bitter and i assume a predator would taste that bitterness as well good on you for trying (laughs) (laughs) i hear that uh i hear in australia that crows know that they're they're uh the cane toads have this this poison on their backs and so they flip them over and eat their bellies instead Uh, crows are maximized same thing mm -hmm. there there's certain animals that know how to deal with them but yep. uh, flip them over, go through the, the underbelly, you know, and you can avoid those big toxic glands for sure. Yep. So you've already uh, mentioned that uh, cane toads have come to be invasive species in Florida and in Australia. Uh, I guess we should talk about a few of these examples. I think the case in Australia is particularly interesting. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, first, let me back up. And so we're, you know, we use the term invasive species and I always like to define that because different people sure. have different uh, you know, concepts in their mind what it is. So 
My, the, loosely, the definition I follow is an invasive species is a species of animal, and it's, it's, it's geographically, you got to put it into context. Because in their native range, cane toads are not invasive. They're native there. But in their introduced range, where they have been moved to by people, either accidentally or on purpose, and in Florida, both cases was on purpose, particularly, I mean, Florida and Australia, particularly in Australia, they were introduced there on purpose, with the uh, you know with the concept that they would control the sugarcane grubs, which they did not do. Right. So yeah. people introduced this cane toad, this toad to Australia. It's not native to Australia. It was brought there by people, and then an invasive species is one that's introduced outside of its native range, either intentionally or unintentionally by people, where it does or has certainly has the potential to cause negative environmental co- uh, impacts, have negative impacts on the economy where it's been introduced. Or, and or have negative impacts on human welfare and human quality of life. Mm-hmm. And certainly in Australia, it has had major uh, environmental impacts. Nice. Uh, caused local declines of species such as quals, which is this really fabulous, small, uh, cat-like marsupial, as well as declines of uh, some uh, uh, crocodiles, freshwater crocodiles, as well as uh, some of Australia's frog-eating snakes. It's had negative economic impacts on Australia as well, because there's been a lot of money spent on studying the cane toads, doing research to try to figure out how they can be trapped and removed, and also doing research to understand about them. And no doubt it's had negative impacts on human quality of life when when Aussies have a dog uh, that attacks one, a pet dog that either has to you know, incur a cost to go to the veterinarian or your dog dies. That's a major negative impact on you. In Florida... It's more of a socioeconomic thing. The the my view now, and it, you know that might change as time passes. But they don't really invade bushlands or natural areas so much in Florida as they do in Australia. But in Australia, so they were brought in in the 30s to control cane grubs, brought from mm-hmm. Australia, released at several sites in Queensland, and have since just spread all over the place. And oh, they've yeah. been really, really interesting. Uh, study species for a guy named uh, Dr. Rick Shine. He and his students have published probably hundreds of papers on cane toes, and they've looked at evolution, impacts, all kinds of really interesting uh, studies that has uh, come about. So that's a little bit of a silver lining. They've sort of been a, an unintended, you know, monster natural experiment in Australia. <laughs> and what's the population like? Do you have any idea? Because I think originally they just re- released a few of them, didn't they? And then they thought they had some success initially, and then they released 50,000 or 60,000. And nowadays I, I have no idea how many are there. Yeah, I think what it was is there were animals that were brought over by, you know, back in the 30s, you know, we weren't as global an economy as we are now, brought over by ship from Hawaii and then released at several places in Queensland uh, one, there's a, a site south of uh, south of Cairns, which is a very, or people will pronounce it Cairns because that's how the the folks from the U.S. at least, because that's not. We say Cairns. <laughs> yeah, it's Cairns. It's Gordon. It was in Gordonvale, and there's actually a small park there. I've been to a number of times with uh, with my students on study abroad, and there's a mural talking about the story of the cane toad. But so they were introduced there in several other places. And those original toads just, they're, they're very prolific. So a large female might lay 30,000 eggs at wow. one time. And you know, all, if, if, if a good portion of those tadpoles survive, that's a huge bump in the population. 
and then they breed, you know, and so on, and 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 they just expand. And the the, the cane toads in Australia, and Australia is about the size of the continental U.S. And so, yes. if, if you know the U.S., you know, you think about it. Okay, they would have been introduced around North Carolina, north of North Carolina. That's roughly if you superimpose Australia over uh, the United States. But in but they would have spread literally as far across as the Dakotas, if you were thinking about. Australia as the U.S. and almost as far south as Georgia in the U.S. and Australia, that's way over across the top end and uh, uh, the Northern Territory into Western Australia and then mm -hmm. heading far south, south of Brisbane, you know, down towards Sydney. And there's an invasion front where the toads move very rapidly and they have, they, they hop farther, they hop faster, they have, they have a body style that's more adapted through evolution to dispersing than the animals in the more established areas. So it's been a really, really interesting yet sad situation in, Aust in Australia from a scientific standpoint, extremely, extremely interesting and, and, uh, and uh, the subject of a lot of research, but also, you know, the major impacts on that unique Australian fauna that has just been been plagued by feral and invasive species, be they foxes or cats and then cane toads. So there's such a problem there. I'm glad they're not as big of an issue here in Florida right now, but there's still a concern. There's still a concern for us, no doubt. Statistically, to get those numbers, do they have to do a lot of tadpoling? <laughs> there's been a lot of work tadpoling yeah. perhaps. and the numbers of animals I don't think anyone can can answer that question how many are there in Australia you know millions if not billions in the here in Florida probably uh -huh. millions you just it's it's so difficult people say well how many are there it's so difficult to answer that question sure sure, sure. sorry I mean, <laughs> it's a statistical <laughs> challenge. I, I know. Yeah. Census. How many people are there in the U.S.? Well, it, yeah, it, I need a cane toad census. <laughs> you have to use all your senses to get the answers. Exactly. So, <laughs> you can't go knocking on people's doors and say, "How many cane toads do you have living in your yard?" Exactly. Legally, legally. There's there's heap there's heaps of them, as they would say in Australia. But you know, Florida's got yeah, a lot that of. Makes sense. I mean, you, Florida also is having some big problems with the uh, Burmese pythons, right? I mean, they're, you, yeah, you, so, you've got all kinds of interesting problems. It's, it's not, I mean, it's interesting. It's parallel, I guess, in a lot of ways right. to what's going on in Australia. Florida is uh, is the global epicenter of introductions of herpetofauna. And by that, I just mean amphibians and reptiles, mainly reptiles. The cane toad is, is one of, uh, you know, only about half a dozen of established and breeding species of frogs. But we have got about three times as many introduced non-native established and breeding species of lizards in Florida than, as we do native species of lizards in Florida. We've got Burmese pythons, we've got tegu lizards, you know, and uh, and we've got, you know, lionfish off our coast. Yeah, iguanas in the in the keys, yeah. Yeah. All these kinds of things. And a lot of it, you know, with the with the cane toads, the invasion pathway was intentional introduction for biological control. But the, more recently, it's be, the pet industry, the pet trade, importing animals for the pet trade is something that Florida and the U.S. really needs to crack down on. The Australians do a great job of that. They don't allow mm -hmm. you to bring things in, but they've learned yeah. from their mistakes of the past. We have yeah. it. Uh, you'd mentioned that cane toads are dangerous to crocodiles and snakes in Australia. And I'm just wondering, how does that work? How is that possible? I thought that it'd be the other way around. 
Yeah, it's just that, you know, so Australia, Australia is such an awesome place. So Australia was part of, you know, when, you know, back in the day, you know, millions of years ago, the as, as best we can tell, all of the, the terrestrial continents were together in a big supercontinent called Pangaea. So right now we need to, we in a, in a, in a metaphorical sense, we need, we, we need to reunite Pangaea. We need to bring everyone from the world together and realize, hey, we're on one planet, we're one people, we have to solve our problems together. But I digress. So Pangaea broke up and there was some northern continents and there was the southern continents. And the southern continents were part of this big land mass called Gondwana. And Australia broke off from Gondwana, from South America and even Antarctica, and it drifted alone in splendid isolation for millions of years. And as it did, so when it when it broke off, it it took a subsample of the Gondwana fauna with it. And then you had a lot of unique evolutionary history of mammals there. That's why you had you know the marsupials become so diverse, and you have the you know the monotremes that are there in Gondwana in Australia, New Zealand, and no you know nowhere else, and and well I should say it's like north of there in, uh, in Papua New Guinea, and so. You have this fawn in Australia that did not evolve with a toxic prey item like the cane toad. And therefore, you would think, oh, you know, how could a cane toad kill a snake, you know, a large snake or a crocodile? It's because those native animals in Australia have not come to recognize the cane toad is toxic and they don't have a physiology to be able to deal with that toxin. Whereas, I think one of the reasons in Florida why it hasn't been an issue, or possibly, is that a lot of our native mammals and our rep- native reptiles have evolved with a more closely related native species, and they either know to avoid them, or they've evolved the you know the physiological mechanisms to deal with their toxins. So that's you know that's that's my best guess as to okay. as to why they could kill a crocodile. That's that's really interesting. So we've talked about how corvids can learn to flip the toads to avoid the and crows and jays they're smart birds yeah but but other animals if i understand what you're saying they have a couple of vectors towards dealing with this one would be to develop toxicity resistance right and that that would be a slow change over time Uh, clearly some natural selection at play right (laughs) but the other one would be um, to figure out as a species how to recognize and I, I like how to recognize the toads as toxic and avoid them. And that seems like that would also be something like if, if the animals don't have the mental facility to communicate to each other, like some of these birds do, how, how, you know, is that something that, that is also naturally selected for a preference against it? Yeah, I think it is. And I, I, I recall reading some research in Australia and then the, the, the Aussies are, you know, they're, they're incredibly resourceful and creative people. And I, I'm pretty sure I've seen in the literature where there's been some sort of aversion training to try to teach some Australian, you know, animals, I think in a captive situation, but maybe even extending this and you guys could probably, you know, do some Google searching of the literature to see this, but, but actually doing this maybe with wild animals. And there has been some, uh, I think, evidence to show that, that populations of, of Australian animals that have encountered cane toads, you know, you'll have the number of more aggressive ones. And, you know, for the selection to occur, you got to have a lot of individual variation, ones that, you know, attack, you know, just full on might die, but then ones that are a little more sheepish, you know, they might have a bad experience, but not die and then learn to avoid them. And so 
that kind of evolution, I believe, is occurring. And I believe the Australians are actually using that to their advantage to try to, you know, sort of train, if you will, some of their native fauna to avoid the toads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Well, I had no idea about that, but uh, I grew up in Sydney, and I never saw one the, the whole time that I was there. Uh, but my mother lives in Queensland on the Sunshine Coast. Mm. And, uh, I mean, you see them everywhere. Often you see desiccated ones around um occasionally you'll see a live one and they do they are much bigger than they are physically they're um I, I don't know if you've I'm sure you've encountered them in the wild but they are really aggressive and they like to bloat themselves up and to challenge you mm-hmm. uh, I mean they're mean bastards <laughs> <laughs> yeah they are they are no doubt they're little monsters you know and they'll yeah so you know if they're if they're if you pick one up it will swell up oh, with god no and that's, no. <laughs> that's a standard, you know, frog or toad thing to make yourself be larger to a to a predator. But I've seen I've seen lots of uh, lots of them in Australia when I've been traveling around, you know, under lights or in caravan yeah. or, or RV parks, you know, or just hopping around in the yards, you know, where folks that I've uh, friends that I've stayed with, I've seen them yeah. there. I've seen them in Hawaii as well. It was the first the first amphibian native amphibians in Hawaii, but. First thing I saw in Hawaii from an amphibian standpoint was a cane toad. And unfortunately, we don't have them up here in, in Gainesville, Florida yet, but they're from about Orlando, central Florida, you know, south. And uh, and people are learning more and more about them because here in Florida, they seem to really do they do the best in human-modified environments, whereas in Australia, they'll do good in, in, uh, in you know, suburban areas as well mm-hmm. in the bush. You know, they'll, they, they, need, they need water sources. So there's research that would suggest that, you know, because Australia is a very arid country. So the, the troughs or the, the tanks are basically the holes in the ground that the Aussies dig to uh, for, for water for the cattle has facilitated the movement of, of cane toads in Australia. So there's the same as, you know, humans have modified the environment a lot to the, you know, and these, you know, these invasive monsters, you know, take, a, take advantage of that, uh, many mm-hmm. of them. Yeah, I remember one day uh, just reversing the car at my mother's place and uh, one saw us and just challenged the car, just blew itself up and was ready, ready to fight. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a great, uh, these two great documentaries, you know, Cane Toads, An Unnatural History. And there's a little girl that lives in the tablelands outside of Cairns and she has this massive toad she calls Dairy Queen. The toad is, it's just huge. I mean, she's a little girl in the video. This is a massive toad the size of a dinner plate. 
And it took it. No. <laughs> these really big poison glands, you know, and if a dog attacks that you know, and bites that gland, it's, you know, for, forget it for the dog. And then there's the second documentary, you know, King, I think it's called Cane Toads, The Conquest. It's it, a lot of the same characters are in there. It's really, really interesting to see. They're, they're great. They're great documentaries. I show those to students in, in the in my invasion ecology class, and it, they're they're entertaining, but they're, they've got a lot of fact facts built in there, and you can learn a lot about cane toads and their biological and their socioeconomic impacts in the you know in Australia. It's really they're they're really great. That's that's like almost you know that you you got to put a link to to those if people can get those. It's really it's really great in the area of COVID. The era of COVID when we're all stuck at home. Screw Netflix. Let's watch some cane toads. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I know uh, when you see something smaller than you behave in a way where it's not afraid, it can be very disconcerting, even to a human. These these guys, these cane toads, they bow up when they're in defensive mode. So is 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 that? I mean, this is not really a joke. Is is that leading to a lot of people mowing them with their lawnmower? That kind of thing is. is like- I don't know. I don't know about that, but they will. You know, if they feel threatened, they'll you know they'll suck in air and they'll sort of stand up and they can lean towards you. They just trying to look more intimidating. You know, mm. just like a lot of snakes in the U.S. will will puff up. They'll they'll flare out their jaws. They make themselves look more intimidating. It's just that's their mechanism to try to protect themselves. You know. Sure. And, uh, and, you know, and some people will be, you know, put off by that. You know, those of us who are out looking for them, I'm like, oh, good. You're not going to run or try to crawl away from me. You're easy to pick up or you're make, you know, make yourself a better, you know, a subject for a for a photo. But it's just, you know, it's just their mechanism to, to try to protect themselves. Is, sure. Is what's on. Well, I know here, like we've got um, it, I don't know if they're really invasive because they've been in the United States, but the the well, you probably have them there, too. In fact, I know you do. Um We've got uh, armadillos now. That was not a thing when I was a kid. I mean, they existed, From but Texas. they weren't in my state. Uh, and now they've they've made it into Georgia. So I know they've that we saw them all over Orlando when we were at Disney right. a few years ago. And um, th- unlike the opossum, which has the bad habit of uh, its defense is to pass out, uh, not good if you're on the road. The armadillo's no. defense is apparently to hop up, and it, yes. which I guess would be great if it didn't put it right in the grill of the car. Um, so I've had I've experienced that. Tried to straddle a possum with a jeep. I had one time, and it, it was scared, and it jumped and hit the underside of my jeep. And when I was coming up from work, there it lay, belly up on the road. So yeah, sometimes you know animals are maladapted, just like the Burmese pythons. Mm. When it gets you know on the rare instance that we get a really cold snap in Florida. The pythons are coming at, they will come out into the sun to try to bask, to warm up, but then it gets too cold for them and they can succumb. If they would just hang out underground, they would avoid that. So they're sort of maladapted to deal with that cold. So, but it worked good where they were native. Doesn't work so good here, but you know, it, it hasn't done anything to curtail their populations. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're proliferating in the, in the Everglades and in South Florida, and they've had major, you know, major impacts. They're a really, really bad invasive species in Florida, without a doubt. Uh, so I know that there seem to be a lot of urban legends about cane toads. Uh, I know in the, the sort of Brisbane, Sunshine Coast, Gold Coast areas that people think that you can freeze them to kill them and that they're well, pouring salt on their backs, lots of different ways to get rid of them. Are you aware of any of these urban legends and what actually 
does work to eradicate them? I am not, but I'm not surprised to hear them. So I do advocate, uh, you know, I, I've got a series of outreach, you know, documents, some little videos I've done, and I educate people here in Florida, and I would do the same in, in Australia, you know, that you, you know, the, it's not that, you know, it's it's not the toad's fault or the Cuban tree frog's fault or the python's fault, so to speak, that they're here, but they shouldn't be here. And to protect our, our economies and our native environments and to be an advocate for our native species, I encourage people to capture and humanely euthanize Cuban tree frogs and cane toads. And with cane toads, there is research done out of Australia, again, by this, by this professor, Rick Schein. Uh, he teamed up with some neurologists, and, uh, and they showed that, you know, from the, the data that they had, the paper that I read, if you would take a cane toad and you would hand capture it, you could just use a you know, a plastic sack that you would get at a grocery store, capture the toad by hand. And if you have them in your yard, you can go out at night and shine a torch if you're in Australia, which is basically U.S. Amer- American for flashlight. For lunch, shine a yeah. Flashlight. yeah. You know, just decisively grab the toad, turn the bag inside out, tie it shut. And if you're willing to, you know, put it in your refrigerator for a couple hours. And that, that, that physically is an, is an anesthetic. It slows down the toad's metabolism. And you can put it in the freezer for 24 hours and kill, will kill it humanely. Or if you wow. cast, you can apply a a, a, a a chemical anesthetic, such as a you know one that you might spray on your topically on your skin or for uh, for rash, uh, a poison ivy or sunburn, or even apply a gel that you would use you know to deal with toothaches. And that would then anesthetize the toad, and then you put it in the freezer for 24 hours, and it will kill it humanely. Now, a lot of people. So, wait, wait, are you suggesting we Novocaine toad? Yes, Novocaine <laughs> toad, and then freeze it. <laughs> and you know what? It's not going to taint your vanilla ice cream if the toad is fresh. It's not going to, you know, it's no threat to you or your food. You can still eat your frozen pork chops and your pizza. But, you know, that's what I tell folks to do. I can't believe that that's true. I because I yeah. heard that growing up, and and I thought that was a urban legend of some kind. So that's that's oh, but, amazing. But we're speaking here specifically about humanely killing the toad. Yeah. So anything that is rapid and is a sort of peaceful or painless death would be considered humane. But I advocate, you know, the either the chemical or the yeah. anesthetic followed by freezing. That's what I tell yeah. people because that follows, you know, veterinary guidelines. There's actually a product in Australia called Hopstop that's uh, an anesthetic spray that, that is, it has been marketed. I think they had some issues with the cans uh, sort of exploding, but I believe it's still for oh, sale. And you can spray the toads with that. But then in the I U.S., you, know, you don't want to put raid or bleach on them. You don't want, it, you know, you don't want the animal to suffer. Right. You want it to oh, die a, a, you know, a, a humane death if you're going to kill it. The bleach would ruin the flavor. There's so many things to consider. It's like... <laughs> I guess people eat frogs. Do people eat toads? I don't know. If you were, you know what? I'd be darn sure to take the skin off. Oh, yeah. Gross. Yeah. yeah. That's where the poison glands are. Right. I've never never tried it. I've tried Nile monitor lizard. That's that's an invasive species in Florida that one of my uh, colleagues uh, caught and cooked. And it was, you know, I'm going to stick with, uh, you know, with chicken. That's that's yeah. That that <laughs> if we started talking about weird things we've eaten, we'd be here all night because I have eaten a lot of weird things. Um, yeah, that's for another show. That's I guess. another show. <laughs> 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 so, uh, so I'm very interested um, 
<laughs> this is such a weird. I mean, this must be strange. I apologize, but this sort of hop between these ridiculous jokes and then like serious biological hop, questions. Hop between. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, I know. It's what we do. Like, <laughs> I, I heard you. I caught you. Yeah, 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 okay. See, I do actually. Okay, I have just. This is an aside to Karen. I actually do understand subtlety, but people don't think that I do. The problem is when I'm subtle, nobody laughs or rolls their eyes or goes. Ah. Speaking of that, remember, I've got a frog joke for you. You know. Anytime you want to tell it. Are you ready? Are you asking? Yes. Oh, yeah, go. If you want to do it here, that's perfect. Let's go for it. Uh, so, <laughs> what type of soda do frogs drink? No idea. Of course, Coca Cola. <laughs> <laughs> thank, thank you for laughing. I really. Uh... That's cute. <laughs> I stunned Kath- my wife yesterday. My wife's name is Kathleen. I stunned Kathleen yesterday. I, I walked into the kitchen and said, I've just come for this great invention, a mechanical uterus. It's a labor-saving device. <laughs> and, and she repeated that on Facebook and Yeah, Twitter she did and- later. But, uh, but her immediate response was "I." she was in front of the sink, and I, I really thought she was going to throw up. <laughs> <laughs> It is dangerous to do that in the kitchen where all the knives and stuff are. So. This would be kind of a follow-up, which would be, do we know what predators they do have I mean, in, in, in their native world? I and mean, We've talked about, obviously, the birds aren't doing enough in, in Australia to keep up with it. But uh, like, w- what animals do successfully eat these uh, without too much harm? Yeah, there you know be, would be would be birds who could deal with them. Uh, uh, you know, some mammals again. Like, I, and I, there's there was a you know it's, it's, it wasn't a natural setting, it's sort of contrived. But when I had a, I had a postdoc here in Florida within the past year named uh, Dr. Benjamin Muller, and we tested this trap that's uh, produced by a company called Acta. Uh, that's Australian, and it's a it's a, a cage trap, a metal trap with a steel roof and bottom, and it has a uh, you hang a uh, a little call lure in there, a little speaker that plays a cane toad call. It also has a little LED light, and it's attached to a uh, via a long wire to a solar panel that charges it. And when the panel stops sending a charge to that to the mechanism in the trap. It signals, hey, okay, it's gotten dark, which is the time cane toads are becoming active, and the lure starts playing the cane toad call with the idea that it attracts females. And uh, and very rarely, never in Australia did they catch any non-target organisms, only caught toads. And we hardly ever caught any non-target organisms in Australia. But one time we did catch a uh, uh, an American opossum or a Virginia opossum, you know, uh, Didelphus virginianus. And that thing ate that toad. It didn't go in through the belly. It didn't go around. It just seemed to consume the whole darn toad without any apparent toxic effects. Huh. So it didn't need to go around it, around the, the toxins. And <laughs> I'm working on a little small note of manuscript right now that uh, is uh, sort of summarizing some observations of, of Florida snakes encountering the toads. And I've seen a photograph of one of our native uh, water snakes that was dead and it had rotted. And clearly there was a cane toad within its stomach. But I've seen other instances where the where snakes had just consumed them, consumed them whole. So 
you know, I don't know. Again, evolutionary history, maybe they have it that, you know, they're able to deal with it. But so some mammals we know might be able to consume them whole. Other ones could, you know, flip them over and go through the belly and uh, eat the, you know, eat the, the, the internal organs and avoid those toxic glands. So, you know, a hungry animal is, you know, is, is, is generally tends to be, you know, pretty persistent and smart. But, you know, I, we just in Florida, we just don't know enough about that about, you know, the impacts on uh, on native wildlife. It doesn't appear to be much. And it's either one, it's because the cane toads don't invade the natural areas so much like they do in Australia. Uh, that's pro- possibly part of it. And it might also be that, uh, you know, our species are just able to to deal with the cane toad because like we talked about earlier, they evolved one. And when Australia, in Australia, they haven't. But generally a larger predator probably just going to attack the whole toad. But it was a really interesting observation that we made of that opossum just consuming the entire toad without any ill effects, you know, which was kind of uh, uh, surprising. Amazing. Yeah. And so we were talking about uh, the introduction of cane toads to Australia, Um, but could we, uh, so I'm going back a little bit further into the, the, uh, the interview that we've done so far, but I'm just wondering why is it that the cane toads failed to control the grubs what what went wrong well i think i think it was an ill-fated experiment or ill-fated effort to begin with so this whole concept of biological control is using one you know animal or organism to control the population of another and it's a, it's it's been used in uh for invasive species for a while and so, for instance, in, uh, introducing mongoose, which is, you know, like a, a ferret, you know, a small carnivore to control whatever it might be, snakes or something. We've learned that vertebrates, vertebrate animals, mongoose, cane toads, whatever, they're really bad biological controls because they are not specialists. So while you might have had some cane toads that in some places might have eaten some cane grubs, in fact, they don't. They just weren't at the right place together at the right time, and they ate so much more. They weren't specific to that. So, for a biological control to to really work, you want it to avoid non-target organisms. So, you would want to let's say bring in some species of beetle that only eats one species or a small group of plants that are not native in an area, and you don't want it to eat closely related species that are native. And it turns out that cane toads are just very gentle predators. So while they might have eaten some cane beetles, they did not eat enough of them, and they didn't focus specifically on those cane beetles to be effective. And uh, it took a while for us to, you know, for people to to realize that. And these days, you know, you just don't introduce a, a vertebrate or more of a gentlest predator to control anything. It's that that there's been enough ill-fated experiments for us to finally realize that's that's the wrong strategy to take. Learned from our mistakes. What, what year was the cane toad introduced? Do we know? Through a lot of a lot of places around the world, it was in the 1930s. That was sort of the heyday. Yeah, it was in Australia. So that, I think wasn't that around the same time they introduced kudzu to to Georgia? It's like it's like another invasive species. It's like yeah, don't, I don't know the history of that, but yeah, and it's all over the eastern U.S. And I think it was brought in either to stabilize erosion or as cattle food and it just is spread all over the place so, yeah. you know but i mean we do have a lot of great examples of species being introduced and they don't become invasive they stay where they're they're supposed to be and they're they're valuable economically so 
it's just we have to do a better job as a society of knowing, you know, doing the research and knowing, all right, this is a risk worth taking. It's worth, we've done the research. It shows, hey, we can introduce this as a crop plant or an ornamental plant, and it's not likely to escape where we put it. But uh, you know we're that we're still we're, we're still learning, and uh, our our past you know mistakes are something we definitely need to take into account before we make decisions like that in the future. Oh, so it just uh, verification. Um, kudzu came to the U.S. for the first time ever in 1876 for an exposition, wow. but in the 1930s, the Civilian Conservation Corps introduced wow. it for s- controlling soil erosion. So yeah. It, it it did. I mean, it also controlled uh, the ability to see pine trees or anything that got in its way. Yeah. So it's like, <laughs> it, it produces a big a big blanket of green over plants that do not need that blanket. Yes, I, I was mm-hmm. it, here. Like my first, like my first, speaking of monsters, my first memory of of just like recurring monster images was near my home when I was a little boy, like not even five. Uh, there was a, a hilltop with a line of pine trees across the top that was completely coated in uh, kudzu. So when we would go home in the evening and the sun was setting, it would look for all the world like a, a line of monsters in some sort of weird, happy Dr. Seussian uh, parade. Uh. It was gorgeous, <laughs> you know. Anyway. I could definitely see that. The silhouette of those trees covered with that kudzu. They look like yeah, these big monsters, yes. you know. Across the landscape, absolutely burned into my memory. Wow. And it was just like every night I would see that it was just amazing. So, but let's get a science question in before we go. Um, we've talked before on Monster Talk about some of the strange and interesting ways that uh, gender changes across reptiles and amphibians. And I know that, like, we talked about alligators and that they're the gender of the of the egg. Uh, is going to be determined by the temperature that it's laid in and or, or that it's con- while it's being developed. Uh, can, right. I, I read that cane toads have a, a, a gender swapping thing that can happen. Are you aware of that, or can you talk a little bit about how gender fluidity works in amphibians? I am not familiar with that. I don't. I don't think that's well known in amphibians in, in, in general. I certainly have not. I have to go look that up. I do not know about that in cane toads. A quick insert here, the article I was reading was referring to the gender-altering effects of human-made chemicals on the life cycle of amphibians. I misread the article while preparing for the show, and I thought it was talking about a previously unknown gender-swapping ability similar to some fish or the environmentally-produced gender changes that some reptiles have. This is not that. But this is the same effect that led to one notable tinfoil hat-wearing philosopher to opine, I don't like them putting chemicals in the water that turn the friggin' frogs gay! And on that chunky spoonful of wisdom, we return to our interview with Dr. Stephen Johnson. But as you mentioned, in crocodilians and turtles, you know, uh, environmental or temperature-dependent sex determination, so they don't have the sex chromosomes like we have. And then I know in some species of fish, which is just crazy, some reef fish, you know, that I think all are male, and when the largest one disappears, you know, the biggest male becomes a female, you know, and that's just, you know, that's counter to what we think of, you know, uh, as humans. But also, you know, we just, in our society, genders are becoming more 
the way we think about that is becoming more fluid. So maybe we're becoming more like, you know, quote, animals than uh, than we think they are. But I don't I don't know about that in cane toads or amphibians. Like, again, I think it's poorly studied. I'm about, to, I'm about to check that out. It is interesting. Like even one of our earliest interviews was with biologist Steve Jones. And he, he his specialty is uh, slugs and snails. And huh. he told us this thrilling story about uh, the how two slugs will come together um, and they're hermaphrodites. And I, and in a perfect world, they would both mate successfully. The, the, the male of each side would mate with the female of each side. But right. it's a real hassle to be the female. So one of them will try to bite off the penis of the other. <laughs> so they only, it's like non-reciprocal. So but banana slugs, I think of that way in California. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's a, uh, and then there's, you know, there's fish that change gender. It's like humans have a really narrow view. Like we know what we know. And if it's not that we get real, mm, that's not right. But yeah, it turns out the yeah. nature's got so many more ideas about what's natural than we do. Yeah. So there are a number okay. of, Parthenogenetic reptiles. Oh, like yeah. A, I meant to mention that. Yeah. Yeah. A little, uh, you know, some some geckos, lizards. There's a little snake called Ramphotyphlops braminus, the flower pot snake, which has been interesting. It might be the most widely distributed reptile in the world because it moves around through, uh, you know, inadvertently through movement of ornamental plants. And it's parthenogenetic where, you know, one individual it, you know, basically produces clones of itself. And so that has the advantage of, you know, if you get moved somewhere else, you only need one of you. But it has a bit of a disadvantage is that you really cut down maybe on the amount of genetic diversity that you can produce. And the more genetic diversity, the more adaptable to change a species is. But clearly this parthenogenetic strategy has worked for a number of a number of species. So yeah, so the bottom line is biology is really, really interesting. It's, you know, Truth is stranger than fiction. And the more, you know, the more we know about, you know, animals and plants and biology in general, the, the, the more I think we realize we don't know and we realize what an incredible world that we live in. And, you know, and we need to we need to we need to do all we can to save this biodiversity, including these monsters, you know, so we can learn more about them because we might be able to apply what we learn about them to, you know, to to ourselves and maybe, you know, help, you know, come up with therapeutics or, you know, whatever. We, we can just, we get insights into into us as humans, you know, the, the, the sort of the animal part of us being uh, human. And the bottom line is we're just, you know, we're a really highly evolved animal that's having a really major impact on the planet. And uh, therefore we, we need to, you know, it's upon us to, uh, to try to do things to lessen that impact, in my opinion. Beautifully said, absolutely. And Blake is right, it's a hassle to be a female. <laughs> <laughs> and I apologize for being a male. It's, you know, we're just yeah. Well, it's certainly a hassle to be a mom. I don't, I, you know, I, I I can't speak to any of the rest of it. But I've just watched what's happened to my poor wife, and you, and, I, and you, Karen, and everybody else who has to. That takes its toll, but it, it's worth oh. it. Yeah. Well, as a species, we really need it. So thank you, thank you for you and all moms everywhere. <laughs> thank you. Should air this on Mother's Day. <laughs> Testosterone is the that's the hormone that may be the downfall of uh, the human race as we know it. So, yeah, indeed. <laughs> uh, well, Stephen, we've got a final question for you. It's a question we like to ask all of our guests, okay. and that is, what's your favorite monster? Ooh, my favorite monster. Let me think about this. Well, I have to go back to being a kid, and uh, I was really intrigued and by you know. National Geographic, Jacques Cousteau, all this kind of stuff, and 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 uh -huh. I, you know, 
My favorite monster, I think, would have to be Bigfoot, but not just Bigfoot, the subspecies, quote unquote, that's in Florida, and that would be the skunk ape. That's, oh. that's my favorite monster. I've never seen one, but I have high hopes. <laughs> <laughs> now, so they have some sort of gland, too, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> they do smell, and if you want to catch one, lima beans, I've read, is a really good bait. <laughs> Interesting. I'm not trying to freeze Mom, them. I can't eat these lima beans. I need to feed our Bigfoot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. trapping. That's, why That's I'm a new one. I haven't heard that. <laughs> yeah, but it have to, it have to be Bigfoot, but specifically the skunk ape. That always, That's that always intrigued me as a kid, and I'm still intrigued now. But I'm fortunate enough to get to study cane toads and, you know, and other smaller uh smaller monster. So, uh, I've, I've, uh, I'm a very fortunate, uh, very fortunate person in scientists. Well, I think, sure. you know, we, we're very skeptical, but, um, I think f- on behalf of, uh, everyone, I, I really hope that the swamp apes are able to avoid the Burmese pythons and the cane toads. Monster talk. You've been listening to monster talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You just heard an interview with Dr. Stephen Johnson of the University of Florida. I'll be putting a link to his program at UFL in the show notes, along with some photos of cane toads. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support that's monstertalk.org forward slash support we have links there to our patreon page as well as a donation button another great way to support the show is to buy books from our amazon monster talk wish list which directly helps us with our research we love used books very much so don't feel compelled to buy new ones and we love kindles so we can share our digital libraries with each other and finally without spending any money at all you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Check out our Monster Talk merchandise at monstertalk.org forward slash store, where you can find a variety of cool products to show that you're a next level monster enthusiast. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thank you so much for listening. a Monster House presentation. And the grand prize winner, the Hypnotoad. All glory to the Hypnotoad. Step into the world of power, loyalty 
and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.